0: Now, we start, though, we found out this week that in British Columbia alone, there have been 106 arrivals at YVR, the Vancouver airport, who refused, flat out refused to comply with the mandatory hotel quarantine. You know that rule for the mandatory quarantine in a hotel? We got over 100, 106 people arrived at YVR and said, hell no. I'm, I'm not doing it. They just walk. They just refuse to go to the hotel. We had Premier John Horgan comment on it yesterday. Also, on yesterday's show, I spoke to federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole about this. And here's what Aaron O'Toole told me yesterday.
1: Literally everything this government has put out, Mike, has been a colossal failure. You know, when people saw sexual assaults perpetrated uh, against a woman in one of these quarantine hotels, they had real concerns.
0: Okay. Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader on the show yesterday. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Charles Lugosi. He is an attorney, law professor, and author, constitutional expert. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Charles, thanks a lot for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay. I appreciate it a lot. So when you hear about people who arrive at YVR and they're told to go and quarantine at a hotel and they say, hell no, I'm not going to your hotel. What do you think about that? I mean, do you think they got a point? I mean, is there any kind of a constitutional argument here to be made?
1: Oh, sure there is. I mean, it's, a, it's against the Constitution to detain somebody, at the, against the Constitution to take away somebody's civil liberties. You know, I think there's a balancing process where there's a violation of somebody's constitutional rights, and the balancing process is found in Section 1. Uh, in other words, is this a reasonable limit? in a free and democratic society. And so when you examine the question closely, you ask yourself, why is there a quarantine in the first place? What's the purpose? Is it fulfilling the purpose? And and, and I think when you take a close look at all of this, you yeah. find that the government has, has dropped the ball in a major way if their goal was to eliminate the risk of variance entering the country
0: well well of course the goal is for people coming into the country they don't want people spreading covid when they come in we're in a public health emergency over twenty thousand dead in in the country so i mean as a constitutional expert when you're in a situation like that and we're in an emergency uh, is that a reasonable limit on your your mobility freedoms in, in canada under the constitution
1: well in theory it could be however the facts and the, and, the, and the science don't match up to what the government is attempting to do. Here's the problem. Um, if we're going to defeat variants, uh, we have to give the second dose of the vaccine on time. Canada is among the worst in the world with respect to the 90 to 120-day delay in getting the second dose. And what's the problem with that, one might ask? I mean, politically, it looks good in a re-election mood for the government to say, look how many millions of arms we've got this dose into. But from a scientific uh, perspective, it's complete folly. Because what happens is, when you delay the second dose beyond the 21 days for uh, Pfizer and beyond the 28 days for Moderna, what happens is the virus gets a big open invitation to mutate and become a variant. And the problem is the first dose is not very effective. And so what happens is the government ineptitude in getting enough vaccines to begin with creates the biggest variant problem, far bigger than international travelers arriving and to be quarantined. See, well, see the biggest problem is that we are inviting variants that are going to overwhelm the healthcare system by not giving the second dose on time. And okay, that's the well, fault.
0: well, I guess the problem is they've got they've got a shortage of vaccine, so they're trying to stretch the supply that they've got. And Canada's uh national advisory committee on, on vaccines has recommended this is a panel of distinguished scientists who have said okay maybe this is not ideal we'd prefer to follow the instructions on the bottle but w- when we've got a shortage of vaccine we're better to stretch it out and and ha- lengthen the time between the shot and i i take it well, okay. your, well and, and it is effective though i mean we've been told that the first dose does protect you right
1: well you know what there is if you look at the data on the Government of Canada's website, they say that the first adult uh, is, is something like 50% effective for Pfizer. They don't have enough data at the time this was put on the website for either Astra or, or for Moderna. So we don't know how effective it is. People are making that assumption. And we had a wow. chance to get 16 more million doses of Moderna but CBC disclosed in January of this year, the government canceled the order.
0: Yes, you know yes, it
1: comes down yes. to money too. I mean, Moderna costs over thirty dollars a dose. So what was the government looking at? Well, it's kind of that was in the pipeline, but that's yeah. only two bucks a dose.
0: It's kind of shocking to think back to that in January when the government said, "Well, it looks like we don't need this extra 16 million doses of Moderna," and they didn't take it. I mean, I wonder if they would do do it, if they had a do over, if they would do the same thing. Let me play this here for you. Here's BC Premier John Horgan, and he was asked yesterday, um, "Could we see further travel restrictions and like a travel lockdown in the province?" Here's what he said
2: we haven't taken uh, travel restrictions off off the board quite frankly uh, it's about how practical are they and how can we enforce you will know that uh, already uh, here in british columbia and indeed across the country but here in bc 106 travelers have tried to circumvent uh, the federal quarantine rules that are governed by our border services agencies that have dedicated locations to engage with people when they're coming into canada and despite that you've had 106 people who've tried in, in bc that have tried to circumvent that.
0: Okay, he doesn't seem too keen on further travel restrictions. Your thoughts?
1: It, 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 really, it really doesn't make sense, and it's really not the way to cure the, the problem, really. I think what you really want to do is this. Ask yourself, are travelers being gouged on the price? You know, if you figure out what the government rates are for hotels, and they're probably less than 100 bucks a night at some of these places, that are on the list at Vancouver, you know, and then you add in the cost of a COVID test, that cost, you know, you can do the whole quarantine business of three days for less than 500 bucks. And, you know, there's a profit built into all of this. And and here, here's the other thing. If it, if it was affordable, who would want to circumvent it and pay $3,000 on a fine? Uh, if you make it cheap enough and effective, and then you get a refund if you don't meet the other two nights, well, that's yeah. fair. You know, so, you know, for $200 or less, everybody would be more than willing to comply with that. Okay. And here's the other problem. You know, you've got cherry pickers coming in from Mexico or wherever to go to the Okanagan, but yeah. they don't get the hotel quarantine. And and you can have, let's say. Because well,
0: they're, uh, wor- they're essential workers.
1: Right? Yeah, but what about essential workers who are professors teaching abroad and they come mm. back to Canada and, and they left before the quarantine business. You know, okay. if you're going to stick them in a hotel, they're essential workers too, okay. but they're not exempted.
0: Okay, thank My you.
1: Hockey players can come into this country.
0: Oh, you know, yes.
1: get hockey players come in, are they essential? Well, only for entertainment purposes but okay. not to run. So,
0: Professor Lugosi, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. I appreciate your time today.
1: Mike, thank you.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. How should women lawyers dress at work, in court, at the office? Do women lawyers need fashion advice so they can dress for success? Well, the Canadian Bar Association thinks they do. Canada's National Association for Lawyers putting on an online fashion seminar for women lawyers. There is a backlash over this now. A group of Vancouver lawyers and articling students has written a letter to the Bar Association saying a seminar like this is damaging to women in the legal profession. Let's discuss now with my guest, Sarah Lehman from the Sarah Lehman Law Group. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Sarah.
3: Hi there. How are you?
0: Thanks a lot. I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. And this presentation, this online seminar is called Empowerment... Through presentation, dressing with more intention. And it includes a a lawyer, the panelists include a lawyer who started a fashion line and a celebrity stylist. Okay, Sarah, what do you think about this?
4: I think that it is just
3: so sad that we're still having this discussion how should women lawyers dress? I mean, maybe if we took that topic for the panel and we changed the word dressing with the word advocating then we might be on the right path. I mean, we just have to stop this madness.
0: <laughs> okay, what do you, th- I don't know. Okay, how do you approach this now? Like, you know, I mean, is is there something to be said, though, about like, like you know, this is a high, a high level profession, so you have to dress in a professional manner, right? Yes. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. But yeah. everybody does, not just women, men as well, as well as non-binary folks that are out there. Yeah. To market this exclusively to young female lawyers is damaging to young female lawyers. It's also damaging to the legal community at large and to society. This type of messaging just has no place in the year 2021.
0: Do you think it kind of, I don't know, reinforces stereotypes about women in, in this profession or that women should be judged about on their appearance or what they're wearing?
3: Oh, absolutely. It yeah. reinforces harmful stereotypes about women. It reinforces harmful stereotypes about women in law, but women everywhere. I think that it's just so horrible to send this message, particularly to young women entering the legal field, that this is just something else on their plate that they have to juggle. It's yeah. something else that they have to turn their mind to that their male counterparts do not. And it is really, really harmful, again, for everybody.
0: What if it was like, um, men included, if it was men, male lawyers and female lawyers both getting fashion advice, like, you know, guys, how do you pick out, how do you pick out your power suit? You know, you're going to wear brown or black suit today. Would that, would that make it any better?
3: Absolutely. I think that would be great. I mean, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with having an interest in fashion or trying to present yourself and look professional. I think that that is really valid, particularly in a society where we're all judged on how we look, whether we like it or not. But yeah. to hold women to this different standard and to market this exclusively to women, it really is just insulting to women in law. But it also does miss out on this segment of the population, men who, quite frankly, do you need help with some fashion as well <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: okay um i sometimes look at a story like this and i'm getting kind of deja vu on it because it was interesting it was not that long ago we had the story about that young that young woman a uh, student at a high school in kamloops got sent home for uh, wearing a dress i guess it was too clingy or uh, at the legislature here, wasn't that long ago there was an uproar about a dress code for women at the legislature, not allowed to show their arms, like a like a sleeveless dress was was not allowed, and women were told to cover up in the hallways of the legislature. And I was, as a guy, like as a man, I was looking at this thing, thinking, like, what is the problem you're trying to fix here? You know, I yeah. mean, I like, <laughs> just I just don't see what the what the issue is. Why there's an uproar about it? Anyway, your thoughts.
3: Yeah, I I completely agree. I think it, again, puts the onus on women and young girls to have this responsibility for how people look at them, that they're the ones who are responsible for making sure that they curate their physical appearance to make other people comfortable. And it's really just not fair. It holds women to a double standard that men are not subjected to. It's something that takes away from their legitimate professional abilities. And it's something that really just needs to go by the wayside. It's, it's old news. We have to stop having this
0: discussion. Right. Okay. On the other hand, though, in a profession like this where I think in some cases, maybe appearances do matter and you don't want to do anything that is going to be in any way detrimental to your client. Right. So if you, if, if someone, whether it's a man or a woman is wearing something that a, that a judge doesn't like or, um, could that, could that be bad for your client? Sure.
3: But again, it goes to men and to women. And we yeah. can't just hold women up to this standard and say that, you know, because you're female, you have this responsibility that's over and above what your male counterparts have to make sure that you look a particular way. It's really dangerous to link the way that a woman looks to their power and to their success and their abilities. And that's something that we have been working against now as women in the legal profession for eons. So the fact that we're still having this conversation is really just pathetic, in my opinion. You know, the difference between my abilities to advocate for my clients doesn't depend on whether I'm wearing a kitten heel that day or a stiletto. I'm still going to do a great job.
0: Okay, speaking to lawyer Sarah Lehman about the fashion seminar for women lawyers being put on by the Canadian Bar Association. Were you surprised when you heard about this, that the Canadian Bar Association was putting on an, an event like this?
3: I wish I could say that I was, but quite frankly, I'm not. I think that this mm. conversation is had so often by so many different people and legitimate organizations. And I think there is a divide between generations now where, you know, maybe older women feel like this is still the type of conversation that's useful to younger women. But quite frankly, it's not.
0: Yeah. Do you think that women sh- women lawyers should be allowed to wear whatever they want, like whatever they're comfortable wearing? Or, or, do, you th- or do you think that that's risky you risk being judged
3: (laughs) yeah well i mean i'm not saying that you know we should be showing up to court in ball gowns or you know Uh short shorts and tank tops but neither should men we do all have to hold ourselves to a particular standard and it's not dependent on your sex or your gender identity and that's the bottom line here
0: yeah i mean it's i don't know at the end of the day is it just sort of a common sense like i think most people who rise to the level of this profession understand what kind of normal business attire is So I mean, yeah, so I mean, would you even need a seminar to talk about it? Or is it just sort of common sense?
3: Yeah, I mean, common sense is not common. I think that we Uh. know that just, you know, looking at the state of the world. But that being said, you know, if you're in the legal profession, you have a good idea or at least a grasp on what's expected of you in terms of your appearance. And if you don't know, then there's people that you can look to or ask. We don't need a seminar aimed at young women to body shame them, put them in particular boxes and hold them to a standard that's just not really not yeah. in tune with
5: um, today's society. What,
0: what are you hearing from your colleagues on this? I mean, this, this has got a story that's got some attention here over the past 24 hours. Are you hearing from your colleagues and what are they saying to you on it?
3: Yeah, I mean, everybody thinks it's a little bit ridiculous that I've spoken to. Um, you know, this is one of the reasons that a few years ago I founded an association called the Women's Association of Criminal Lawyers. Uh, it's to fight back against these kinds of sexist stereotypes and double standards and to create real empowerment for women that just goes beyond their suit or whatever they're wearing that day.
1: Yeah.
0: Is there um, a dress code in court? Like when you're in court representing a client, are you typically wearing like the legal robes or is, is that standard these days? Yeah.
3: It it is in Supreme Court. So if you're in Supreme Court and you're making submissions, you are expected to wear the robes. And that's the same whether you're a man, woman, non-binary doesn't make a difference. You have to wear those robes. But in provincial court and other lower levels of court, uh, you're just expected to wear, you know, business attire, to wear a suit, uh, to look professional and put together. And that's a standard that everybody is held to.
0: Right. And have you ever been in a situation where, I don't know, you looked at another lawyer and said, whoa, what's that person wearing? That doesn't, that doesn't seem appropriate.
3: I mean, sure. I think that I have, but I've done that with men and women. Um, and I think it's important to remember that women are the ones who are judged more harshly based on their appearance. They're the ones that we look at and we really think, you know, um, that for whatever reason, their physical appearance is a reflection of their worth. And that's, really at the heart of what this seminar strikes to, and that is the problematic aspect here that I have an issue with.
0: All right, welcome back as we continue talking about a fashion seminar for women lawyers put on by the Canadian Bar Association. Uh, Some lawyers uh, don't like this uh, idea at all. My guest is Sarah Lehman, Sarah Lehman Law Group. Let's go to your phone calls now and see what you think about it and speak to Colleen in Vancouver. Hi, Colleen.
4: Well, hello, Mike, and uh, hello, Sarah, and good morning, and thanks for letting me on your show. I was a Supreme Court registrar. I worked in the registry, and from day one, you never wore, uh, I I was told the rules, uh, you never wore a sleeveless dress without a jacket. You always wore a jacket, and um, for... uh, some of the younger girls, things kind of got a little relaxed, and they started coming in like in summer cocktail dresses, sort of, you know, and uh, they put on a seminar for us, and that was about 12 years ago. I've been retired 10 years or so, and um, I don't remember if the guys were there. I think they were, Uh, but that was under sort of the old guard, and then we had a new uh, manager who came in and he relaxed things up a bit and the guys could wear uh, golf shirts and oh. women could too but they relaxed it up so this is about 2007-8 ni- uh, and I would say that young lady in Kamloops if she'd worn that in in say 2008 she would have been asked to change or go home and uh, that would not be deemed appropriate. And uh so I can understand, like even at the legislature it's sending um they want to send a message of professionalism and they take their work seriously, I think right. anyway, and another thing, if you ever watch uh, Washington week amy um Amy uh, Walter, uh, she's on. Uh, she always wears a navy jacket and a shirt, and her hair is very professional. And I, she was on last Friday, and I found myself I was really focusing on what she was saying and not what she was wearing. So, she's so you do you
0: yeah. there? Do you therefore, th- Colleen, this is a great call, and I appreciate you Thank calling you. in to tell that story. Do you therefore think that it's reasonable to have like a seminar like this for with with, with fashion advice for women? Do you think that's okay?
4: I, I think it is, Mike, and okay. not, um, I, it's not putting down lawyers. I've, I've met and dealt with a lot of lawyers, and it's just um, uh, you focus on the, the the message and not what they're wearing, and and what you focus on the content, and, right, um, right? You know, and and, and that's I think the, the thing with the gowns. There again, this is serious business. We're 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 not gonna uh, we're not gonna be wearing. A sleeveless top. I'm okay. in my gown, and it's the message.
0: Thank you for I'm the call. Thanks a lot for the call, Sarah. What do you think of that?
4: Well, I think it's important to uh, focus on the message, exactly as our
3: um, caller said. And the message here that this is sending to young women in the law is that they're being held to a different standard than their male counterparts. They're already entering a legal profession where they're going to be likely paid less than their male counterparts. And they're going to have to work harder in order to prove themselves. And we're telling them that what they wear is going to be a reflection of how successful they are. And I think that's really, really damaging.
0: Uh, okay is it damaging or is it is it reality though is it realistic like is we have to
3: change the reality if that's uh, the reality and women are judged harshly on what they wear and the, the people's view of how uh worthy they are and how professional they are is based exclusively on what they wear they're being held to a different standard than men then that reality needs to be changed
0: right okay adam on the line in port moody hi adam hi mike um I uh, just
6: wanted to say, as a man, I I, um, everyone is judged on how they dress and how they present themselves. That's not exclusive to women, and I I think it's a shame that men don't have actually more access to uh, services like this, or they don't feel comfortable like that because men actually could use this too and it's obvious that all you have to do is go on youtube and there's thousands of videos you know trying to help men uh, improve the way they look so i i I think that rather than telling women that no you are not allowed to access service because uh, a certain group of us feel it is sexist i really feel that it should be offered to everyone to both people and it doesn't necessarily have to be a co-op group because it's some of those some of the fashion details are specific to men or women so okay, okay
0: you know, thank-
6: have the one for women and have one for men too
0: okay adam thank you for that uh, sarah we just got a little over a minute left here and we, we touched briefly on this earlier but i don't know i mean he's saying that everybody's judged on their their appearance and what they wear but i mean come on i mean women are judged more aren't they i mean you know a guy could wear the same suit to work every day for a year and probably a lot of people wouldn't even notice
3: I think a lot of lawyers, uh, male lawyers, in fact, do do that. And I couldn't agree more with the call taker. I do think that these types of services should be offered, but they should be offered to men and women alike, all people. When we really focus on one sex and make them adhere to a particular standard, that is sexism, and that shouldn't
4: be acceptable.
0: Okay, let's squeeze in one more call. Benita in Arrington. Benita, you got like 30 seconds here, okay?
4: Okay, I'll be really quick. Thank you for yeah. taking my call. Sarah, do you remember the movie Legally Blonde when at first uh Reese Witherspoon was wearing whatever she wanted, you know, lots of pink, lots of heels, lots of frills and she wasn't taken very seriously and yet when she, when she went to court her first mm. day in court, she dressed just to the nines as a, as a conservative lawyer, and she did win the case. The other point I want to quickly bring up, Mike, which I'm sure that your, your, uh, your next guest, uh, Keith Baldry, will know, when Check 6 newscaster wore a certain top on uh, yes. uh, the anchor... Yeah. doing her job one, out one evening the anchor who is very professional all sorts of people got their um, set their hair on fire for yeah, a coffee they did and, and, she,
0: and she, she pushed back on that too I think to her great credit thank you Benita we're out of time there but thank you for your call Sarah thank you for coming on today
3: thanks so much for having me
0: alright welcome back to the show let's talk about drivers versus cyclists on the streets of Metro Vancouver now and the BC Cycling Coalition this week rolling out their campaign for a minimum passing distance law. They want 1.5 meters. They say that should be the law. If you're behind the wheel in a car or a truck, you're going to pass a cyclist on the street, you must leave a minimum distance of 1.5 meters. Meters. That is the call from the BC Cycling Coalition. Now, I spoke to Peter Ladner, the vice chair of the coalition, on the show earlier this week, and here he is making the case here for that 1.5 meter passing rule.
7: The point is not so much that there's a, a fine because the number of times it would be enforced would probably not be that great, but more that people know that the rule is there. It's sort of like uh, yeah. there's a speed limit at 50K in residential streets, and you don't get a lot of speeding tickets there. But people know and that and they they respond differently
0: okay so there he is making the case for a 1.5 meter distance passing rule it started a big conversation on the show about whether what the rules of the road are for passing a cyclist and whether cyclists themselves are following the rules too okay let's discuss further now with my guest steve wallace the owner of wallace driving school and i'm pleased to welcome him back to the show hi steve hey good morning mike what do you think of this idea, Steve? 1.5 meters is a minimum passing distance for going around a cycle. think it's a good idea?
7: Well, I think that uh, Ladder's got a pretty decent idea, but I'm really, um, I really wonder about passing laws that don't seem to get enforced. That's my problem. And I, I would like to see laws that are passed and then the police enforce. Everyone knows exactly what the situation is. I think that 1.5 meters is a f- relatively decent distance. Uh, The problem that you have now, though, is as far as drivers are concerned, they're very, very aware of cyclists. You've got a lot of bicycle lanes exclusive, you know, Uh, you you have a bicycle lane, uh, but there there are a couple of problems. A lot of the really good riders don't want to ride in those lanes because the curbs are higher than a downstroke of a pedal. So if you ever have to move over and you do the downstroke of the pedal, the curbs they built, you're going to wreck on that. Uh, and then where do you go? Well, you probably fall into traffic. So the best thing for good cyclists to do is to be in traffic. And a lot of the drivers don't like that. They figure, hey, if there's a bike lane, then they make them travel in the bike lane. We're not allowed to travel in the bike lane in our cars. Why should they be uh, allowed to travel in our car lane with their bikes when a bike lane is provided? Um, well, I don't particularly agree with that. But there is a real conflict now between cyclists and, and car drivers that uh, well, wasn't there before.
0: Okay, what do you teach your students when they're behind the wheel and they're approaching a bike and they have to pass a cyclist? I mean, I know myself. I love to. Get, I like to give these cyclists a wide berth. I will go around them and give them a lot of space. I don't want to get too close. But I, you know, you hear complaints all the time that uh, drivers pass too closely to a cyclist. How do you teach your students on that?
7: Well, what we like to be is in the left lane of a two-lane road. If you have to do that, if you have to pass them, you want to give them ample space. You know, the, the problem that you have with cyclists is that they pay with their lives they pay for the injuries. When a car hits a a cyclist, particularly when they're going the same direction, the car driver gets out and and leaves. The automobile driver goes. I mean, they're they're not injured. Uh, We're killing about a dozen of those cyclists a year. And that's a fairly low number when you consider all other kind of accidental deaths with the drug stuff that's going on plus the car crashes and we're doing a lot better lately but the fact is that when the cyclists are on the road you have this quandary with drivers drivers they're a little envious of cyclists because number one the police don't seem to give them tickets okay and number two they do rolling stops half the time they don't stop at the intersection stop signs or whatever they seem to get away with a bunch of things and at this time of year it's even worse because you have all these recreational cyclists out there these they call them wobblers they're wobbling down the bike lane it's like they had their bike out for the first time in the year uh, the other people that are really good at riding their bike i don't have any problems with them but you really have to give them the space i'll tell you right now the drivers you might feel bad about, oh, I have to share the road with cyclists, but every time you see a cyclist on the road, that's one fewer car. Yeah. So the more cyclists that you have, the better off it is as far as traffic volumes are concerned.
0: Okay, you made a good point about if a if there's a collision between a car and a and a cyclist, the cyclist is obviously much more likely to get the, the worst of it. And that is a point that Peter Ladner made from the Cycling Coalition earlier this week on the show. Let me play that for you, Steve. Get your thoughts. Here's Peter Ladner.
7: If a cyclist breaks the law, the consequences are not usually that awful for anybody compared to when a, when a car driver goes through a red light, say, there's a death situation waiting. Whereas if a cyclist goes through a stop sign, They're putting themselves at risk, and it's a stupid, foolish thing to do, but uh, the
0: consequences
7: are are not nearly the same as when car drivers break the law.
0: Okay, making a similar point that you just made, Steve, but you often see, I hear people complaining all the time that they see cyclists breaking the rules. What do you think?
7: Well, here's the situation. What we try to do with the new drivers in particular is say, hey, when you get to the end of a block and you see the dashed line, you know you have the two solid lines where the bike lane is identified, and then you see the dashed line near the intersection. Move your car as close to the curb as you can, and that keeps the bike behind the car, and as such, it keeps the bike in view, and the bike doesn't get trapped in a blind spot. So the key is And I was asked this question by another fellow. He said, you know, Steve, uh, what's the real uh, action the police uh, follow? I said, well, if the cyclist hits the back of your car, it's the cyclist's fault. But if you hit the cyclist and that collision takes place on the side of your car, it's going to be your fault every time. And as such, you want to be aware of that. So when you're making right turns as a driver and the uh, lines on the road allow it, get as close to the curb as you can. That way, when you're waiting for the light, then the bikes can't get into your Spot between you and the curb.
0: All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about drivers and cyclists. My guest is Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School. Lots of phone calls. Let's go right to them. Jimmy in Vancouver. Hey, Jimmy. Hi there. Hi. Hi, go ahead. So,
2: yes, I'd just like to uh, give you a quick uh, rundown on, uh, from a cyclist perspective, who are the worst drivers on the road? from a cyclist perspective. Okay. And number one would be people on cell phones. Um, distracted drivers are definitely um, a, a big, big problem for cyclists. Number two would be uh, young women with uh, babies in the car or young children in a car. Again, it's uh, a distracted uh, driver situation, and uh, as a cyclist, you see this all the time. Number three would be for the female cyclists, um Young guys in pickup trucks, uh, aggressive and uh, just dangerous. And, really?
0: Now, why do you think why do you think that affects uh, women cyclists in particular?
2: Um, I've just seen it happen many, many times. Um, the young guys just seem to develop brain cramps about it, and uh, oh. they act aggressively and yell at the girls, tell them get off the road, are um, abusive, and uh, it's just it's just dumb behavior okay. and from a cyclist's point of view it's something that uh, you encounter almost daily when you go out
7: for a ride it's, okay. it's really sad
0: jimmy yeah. thanks a lot for the call steve what do you think of that uh, well
7: psychologically a lot of times what will happen is the bigger the vehicle sometimes you get into a bully situation so the caller is probably correct in in the manner of how, you know, the larger the vehicle, uh, it just seems, and the age to the twenty, thirty somethings are kind of famous for that. But the, the big deal for me is when you are on the bicycle, if you're seen and your colors are there and you're in decent shape, you, you have a tendency to, to to get the awareness up. And, and you don't get that, that being cut off or, or, or the ignoring of things. But I will say one psychological thing. Drivers have a tendency to be aware of what can hurt them as opposed to what they can hurt. So they have a tendency to take a look at things like bigger vehicles or cross traffic or something that can kill them, as opposed to thinking of who they can kill. It's all about the wow. id complex and taking care of oneself. And that's probably the not, way, not the way they should be thinking of it.
0: Okay, let's go to Ron on the line in Burnaby. Hey, Ron. Hey.
7: Hi. Anyway, hey, uh, hey, Steve. Uh, good point. It, uh, it's the truth. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I'm a gardener, right? So I'm like all over the lower mainland. Uh, Bonnie
1: Henry must hate that. So, <laughs> um, but the, the thing is, uh, for both cyclists and uh, drivers, I think they all forget the fact that uh, uh, 200 kilograms of uh, metal in human uh, doesn't beat uh, 2,000 kilograms of steel. Any day, and they just seem to think, "Oh, I'm one moving object. I'm another moving object, and I have this right, and you have that right, and it doesn't matter." So, uh, what, so, so you're I saying seen this? So but,
0: many horrific accidents. Yeah. So you're saying what the cyclists take too many risks? Is that what you're saying?
7: I think they both do. Uh
0: Okay, Steve, your thoughts?
7: Uh, I think that what happens is a self-preservation. Uh, state of mind that the cyclists have, and a lot of them are pretty sharp. I find the best cyclists are drivers. They stay out of the blind spots of drivers. They know what's going on. They have some compassion for what the driver's driver's going through. The best uh, drivers are people who Cycle because they have a pretty good idea as to what the cyclist is going through. The problem when you when you're out in the road is if a guy is in a car, or a woman's in a car, and they've never been on a bike a bike in their life, they have little compassion for what the what the cyclist is
0: going through. Okay, interesting. James in Cloverdale. Hi, James.
7: Hey guys, thanks for taking the call. I um, two things. The one and a half meter distance is going to be difficult to police, which is a problem. But also, there's approximately 250,000 bikes just in Lower Mainland Vancouver. And it's time maybe to, to create this equality between drivers and cyclists with a $50 license fee. I know you've had huge debates about that. But that would raise over $12.5 million bucks to help get things safer for bicycles. And, you know, they do no training uh, for drivers, new drivers, in how to deal with bicyclists. Cyclists. Okay. And I ride a bike, so I know what you mean.
0: Okay, it's an idea that comes up frequently, Steve, when we discuss this. Should drivers, should cyclists be licensed or insured? I don't think you'll ever see a government go there. But your thoughts?
7: Well, they tried it in the past. It's a it's a real uh, bureaucratic nightmare. Uh, that's number one, and and the the licenses never really pay for the bureaucracy necessary to do it. Um, as far as the cyclists are concerned, though, if you're the one that's going to be damaged. If you're the one that's going to take the biggest hit, that's that's the person that's got to be the most aware. As far as drivers are concerned, always remember that you're never going to sleep at night. I mean, if you hit a cyclist and a cyclist is injured for life or killed, forget the legal ramifications. You're going to be in a, you're going to be a basket case for months and possibly years to come. So the big deal is, is go look for them. They're looking for you. Go look for them.
0: Yeah. Good advice there. Tim in Vancouver. Hi, Tim.
7: Yeah, I just want to say the
6: excellent point that your uh, guest has made about the yeah. consequences of yes. hitting someone. And Peter Ladner just glossed over that. Didn't think there's any consequence for the driver that was involved in an accident, whether their fault or not. But more interestingly, like he's advocating for this meter and a half and we all want cyclists to be safe. But on the other side of his mouth, he's advocating for rolling stop signs, not enforcing the helmet law, which is a joke. And anytime I see a cyclist stop at a stop sign, I praise him because I don't see it a lot. Like sharing a road with a guy like Peter Ladder is like sharing a toy with a two year old.
0: Okay. Okay. Oh, well I think that's a little a little harsh, but let me ask you about the helmet law, uh, Steve. I I don't I think there's there's more observance of the helmet law these days than in years past, but your thoughts?
7: Yeah, uh, it's a generational thing. A lot of people uh. who are riding their bike a lot will have the helmet on. They know what's going on. It's the law. I mean I have to have my seatbelt on, they have to have their helmet on, it's the law. Follow it. They didn't make it because they were want to upset people. They made it because they thought it would work. And every time I, ha- I hear people saying that they don't want to ride with helmet, that's fine. If I were to if I were to say to you, Mike, okay, let's do away with the helmet law. Let's do it tomorrow. You don't have to wear a helmet. You know what? But when you have a crash and you have a brain injury, we're not covering you.
0: Oh yeah, right. Okay, right.
7: let the health system, uh, let your family go into debt for the next ten years or the next two decades because you whacked your head and have to be have to be looked after in the hospital. But the but the medical plan is not going to pay.
0: There has been some effort in British Columbia to relax helmet laws and saying, well, they don't wear helmets in uh, in in parts of Europe, and what's the big deal? And. I've talked to guys. I know friends of mine who have been involved as cyclists in an accident and the helmet saved them from catastrophic injury. You should wear the helmet. Let's go to Ed in Vancouver. Hi, Ed.
2: Hi, Mike. Hi, Steve. Hi. Uh, I'm a tour bus driver. Okay. Let me tell you, you see an awful lot when you're on the road. And, I just, and just off the top of my head, bikes not safely lit. No flashing front headlight. No tail light At night, in the rain wearing dark clothing. That's number yeah, one.
0: Yeah.
2: Cyclists running red lights or four-way stops. I'm at a four-way stop. I've, I am now, it's my turn to go. Out of nowhere, a cyclist blows through the stop sign. Oh. And if I honk at them, it's not because I'm pissed. It's because I'm trying to let them know I'm coming through and you just broke the law. And number three, lack of knowledge of the road rules or not just not caring. And finally, the one that really gets my goat is cyclists using the road and the sidewalk, depending on
7: which is more convenient for them.
0: Okay, Ed, thanks for the call. Steve, we just got a minute left here. Whichever point you want to take there, he raised a few.
7: Okay, Yeah. first of all, if you put bus drivers in charge of anything... They'll do a better job than most of the people that are in charge. <laughs>
0: they just—they
7: just seem to see all sorts of things on the road. They're fantastic drivers. They take—they have the most most valuable cargo, meaning us. But bikes on sidewalks, get them off the sidewalks, for God's sakes! I mean, you have elderly people, you have people that are ambulatory. They have—they have problems get them off the sidewalks of on the streets and as far as fines are concerned i mean you want to whack fines on cyclists that will get their attention that's about the only thing that's going to get their attention because it sure gets drivers attention
0: At our steve thank you for coming on the show today anytime mike all right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on your mental health and the mental health of the people that you love. There are new reports emerging now that the virus itself can cause long lasting emotional impacts on people who catch COVID-19. And then, of course, there's the general impact of the pandemic on people, the isolation, the stress the anxiety. All of these things can impact you and your family. Dr. Bonnie Henry has been asked frequently about this. Now, here's Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, talking about what she does for her own mental health.
4: In terms of my own mental health, it's been a challenging uh, few months, let's just say. Um, but I am somebody who uh, who who runs and uh, meditates, and I am very grateful and thankful that I have a huge team of uh, of health and public health professionals that I work very closely with. and you know that is what keeps us going.
0: Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry there. It's super important to be aware of mental health at this time for yourself and your family. So let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Rotem Regev. She is a Vancouver registered psychologist, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Dr. Regev, thank you very much for coming on.
5: Thanks so much for having me on the show, Mike.
0: You bet. I appreciate it a lot. Uh, What has it been like for you and your practice um, during this pandemic? What are you sort of seeing these days?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So we've been at it for over a year and uh, we are seeing that people are struggling overall. I mean, there's definitely variability, but I would say that uh, this is taking a huge toll on people. As you mentioned, economic strain. uh, We're working from home, Any of us, those of us who were fortunate enough to keep our jobs. So finances can be tight, health, health, we're experiencing a lot of, um, I would say a lot, of, a huge impact in, on our relationships being kind of all cooped up in the same space and not yeah. seeing others. But I would say, Mike, that what I'm seeing as um, the number one impact on people is um, loneliness.
0: Wow. Wow! Yeah, because of the isolation, right? I mean, people are social distancing. Some people have got a very tight-knit, close family, and that's got to help a lot. But then there are other people, I'm sure, that it's uh, disproportionately impacting on that.
5: Absolutely. And look, even before this pandemic, we did have what I would call an an epidemic of loneliness. We are We are not living the way we should be with being close to people around us. We're not fostering these relationships as much as we used to in the past. And it's just exacerbated it to a whole new level, not being able to have your support system around you.
0: Right. Are you seeing more family conflict in your practice you mentioned about people being cooped up does that lead to more sort of domestic trouble are you witnessing that seeing that
5: Absolutely, 100%. I would say that it is difficult for all of us. I mean, look, this was very, very sudden and took us all by surprise. No one expected this. And there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty. And that has been going on as we've been kind of riding those waves. There, we, we get to a little bit of the homeostasis where we're kind of figuring it out. And then there is another wave that comes and surprises us. We are um, in, in close quarters, right, uh, in our limited spaces. And, yes, there is uh, there is a lot of um, family dynamics that are at play. We're all kind of not our best selves right now because of what's happening, because of the toll that it's taking. So, we you know, and we differ. We have to remember and respect that at the best of times, we have from parenting practices we see things differently some of us are more extroverts others are more introverts so we have different needs for different people and then to be kind of cooped up in a small place not being able to access our support system right because I think right. that's huge um is really taking a toll on our family life for sure
0: Right. Speaking to Dr. Rotem Regev, she is a Vancouver registered psychologist, and we're talking about your mental health uh, during the pandemic. Can people monitor their own mental health? Like what advice would you would you give to people in just monitoring how they're doing themselves and what kind of maybe maybe some warning signs they might want to look out for?
5: Yeah, so I think people know, people have a sense um, that they're, you know, they will see the signs that they're maybe not doing as well. And I would say, at this point, we're kind of past the, they kind of um, sudden onset of the stress. It is so chronic at this point. So we've lost wow. contact with our friends for such a long time. We're not exercising in the gym. We're not really stripped out of our support system. So we're I think people are feeling it. They know. They will know that their uh, mood is kind of not where it used to be. They'll see that they're more anxious. They'll see signs in their in their body. Um, I think people are um, in tune with their bodies, and they understand something here is um, not quite right, and they're and they're feeling it. Yeah. So yeah.
0: This, this thing has dragged on for so long. I mean, here we are into year two of this, and that's really grinding down a, a lot of people. And I wonder if you could comment a little bit about how people can cope if you have any tips on people how people can cope with the stress and the anxiety that they're experiencing here because of this pandemic and we, we just heard dr bonnie henry uh talk about how exercise is important for her she's a runner she out she's out there running and exercising a lot that certainly helped me a lot too what do you think
5: mm-hmm. yes absolutely exercise is is amazing for the yep. body um we actually have research to show that um, that exercising and if you really get your heart rate up a few times a week for about 20 minutes or so, this is as efficacious for your mental health as taking antidepressant medication. So the I, I can't stress enough how wonderful it would be for you if you're able to, if you get clearance from your physician to go out there and get your heart rate up, run, cycle, um, you know, and even kind of brisk walking around the park. Uh, there's ca- yeah. a, kind of a couple of things happening there. One is that you're getting your heart rate up, and the other one is that you're out in nature. And uh, even if you're around the city, you're kind of out of your living space. And that can really just help, you know, just shift our perspective, Mike. Oh, the, you know, the birds are still out there. The trees are yeah. still out there. It gives us a kind of gra- grounding,
0: how about for kids? Are you seeing more of that in your practice, like people struggling in their, like children struggling, or people people struggling to talk to their kids about this? As this thing just continues to drag on?
5: I think people are, so I see more adults, but definitely talking to yeah. adults and parents. I see many, many parents, and and getting lots of questions from kids about so when is this gonna be over? Yeah. And I think this is the hard part that we don't have, um, we just don't have answers. That's part of what's uh, really rough for us. And um, you mentioned kind of what can people do. So I think it's really it would be nice. There's a couple of things. One is to, if we're talking about uncertainty and there's so much that is uncertain, it would be really nice for people to kind of make a list sometimes and say, okay, what are some of the things that I can't control that I just, you know, I don't know how long this is going to go on for. I don't know if school is going to go part virtual or not. Like I don't know. And I can't control that. So what can I control? Mm -hmm. Where can I take back some agency in my life what can mm. i do can i say you know what i'm going to start my mornings with just taking a few deep breaths
0: mm. okay or
5: I- i'm going to commit to on my lunch break Um, going around even the block if I'm working from home or going out? uh, Am I going to commit to um, actually reaching out to that friend who I thought, "Mm, should I reach out? Should I not? What are we going to talk about? No one's doing anything anyway, right? So there are things that we can control, and I really encourage people to think about um, what they they can do and what they have agency over.